iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Yo, technology, what is it all about? Telehealth has gone from being a second or third option to kind of the primary way that people want to have a first conversation or a first experience. And I don't think that's going to change. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. And a very good day to you. How are you all doing? Things are pretty glorious out here. The sun is shining. It's almost summer-like, which of course made me immediately think about, ooh, summer isn't going to actually be that far away. And of course that means wildfires out here. So I went and ordered a couple air purifiers for the house so that... We are not caught out like we were last year when the inevitable run on air purifiers happens around July or August. At least that's what's been happening these last few years. Hopefully it doesn't happen again, but these are uh, difficult times we live in. But anyhow, we're not talking about climate this week. We are talking about birth control and more broadly, women's health. On the program... We have Varsha Rao, who is the chief executive of Nurex, which is a website. It's also an app through which women can get everything from birth control, pills and patches to STI tests. And the company's just steadily building out a bunch of different offerings for other medical needs. And it's just a really interesting company. They've raised a bunch of money and they're part of this whole new kind of mini industry of direct consumer medicine companies or medical companies that are leveraging smartphone apps and telemedicine to deliver drugs, uh, treatments, even therapy, talk therapy to people, you know, not through the typical means of going to a doctor's office, but, you know, just all digitally via app, etc. Um, and I want to have Varsha on because the company just saw this huge surge of interest during the pandemic, which I guess is not surprising. He wants to go to the doctor in a pandemic. Uh, not me. But she's also been doing this whole startup thing for a really long time. She's um, going all the way back to the late 90s when she started an early e-commerce company called Eve.com. Some of you may remember. She sold that. She did a bunch of other stuff and then has now ended up back at Nurex. So she's just built up a lot of wisdom and experience over the time. And she shared a lot of that with us. So I think you're going to really enjoy uh, the conversation. So I'm going to stop talking. And I now hand you over to Varsha Rao, the chief executive of Nurex. Enjoy. It's kind of been a year of telemedicine for obvious reasons due to the pandemic and everything. And I was just wondering how the past year has been for Nurex and what you guys do. So this has been a incredibly... I guess, unpredictable year, I would say, probably for everybody and for us as well. So 
you know, I think we came into 2020 really excited just about our core value proposition, which was all about being a healthcare platform predominantly for women. But we really, we, back then, we were still mostly focused on contraception. And so we were excited about expanding into new areas as we had planned. And then the pandemic hit. Yeah, sorry, you're just going to say contraception, i.e. sending birth control pills to women. Birth control, emergency contraception, but we also do the pill, the patch, uh, sorry, the patch, the shot as well. So all forms of contraception. And that's that was really the core, has been the core and the foundation of the business. And it was kind of the place where we felt like was the way to really build a, a relationship with women. You know, women start using contraception in their like late teens to early 20s. And then, you know, it's a way to stay connected with them and serve them for over you know, 20 years over on and off over the course of their kind of maturity. And so that had been the focus. We launched herpes in the beginning, herpes treatment in the beginning of 2020. And, you know, we're kind of moving into that expansion of going from contraception to sexual health. And we had launched STI testing at the end of 2019. And so we were kind of firmly moving into that area. And then COVID hit. And, you know, there's kind of a couple of things that happened. One, uh, as a team and a company, we had to kind of figure out like everybody else, like what to do. And so we had two of, out of our three facilities, we moved to remote work, uh, our San Francisco, which is where we have kind of a lot of our tech and marketing, legal finance. And then our customer experience and our registered nurse team are based in Miami. And we also moved to a remote environment for them. But we do have a online pharmacy that is in Syracuse, New York. And so we had to figure out how to enable our team there to work safely, but still on site, because of course we offer this end-to-end -end experience and shipping of the medication is a part of that experience. And our providers have historically always been remote. So that was actually less of a new challenge. So that was one thing we were dealing with in March. We got through that. And then what we also saw kind of April, May, June was just a huge surge of demand. So everybody was in shelter at home, you know, couldn't get to their providers. There were two things happening, right? You couldn't mm. get to your provider. And then there was also just, you know, a lack of confidence in even going into a pharmacy. And the fact that you could, you know, come to Nurex, you know, you fill out an online questionnaire, a provider through our platform can diagnose you and prescribe for you. And so you don't have to see a provider in an in-person setting. You could come to us. And then we could also ship you that medication. It just really started to speak to people in a way that I think felt like, okay, I can not only don't have to go in to see a provider where I wasn't able to, I was being, you know, kind of only essential visits were being allowed. And then also getting even to the pharmacy was not feeling so comfortable. Right. And so we were dealing with an, a phenomenal kind of surge in birth control requests, emergency contraception. It ended up being all of the services we were in, STI testing. So last year we saw, you know, 50% increase in birth control, 100% increase in STI testing, and 100% increase wow. in herpes, all because we have this end-to-end -end platform. And do you have a sense of how much of this was due to, as you're saying, like people are just not confident about going out in the world and how much of it is just people were having more sex because everybody's at home and there's going to be a whole generation of like, you know, COVID babies. So it's interesting. <laughs> I think there's mixed views on this and we don't have the necessarily data to 
corroborate one way or another. But what we've seen is a huge dramatic increase in demand for kind of our services, including contraception. But I will say that a lot of families and women have been really concerned about getting pregnant during this Mm. time because of a lot of the economic uncertainty. And so there's been huge unemployment, which, you know, is starting to improve, but still lots of unemployment, job uncertainty, and financial instability. And that's led to people wanting to be really in control of their contraception. Right. So one of the things that that has happened this year, obviously, is just the broader move toward telemedicine. And I'm wondering, how difficult is it to navigate from, there's two aspects, there's one just people getting used to talking to a doctor through a screen rather than going to an office, and feeling okay with that experience. And then there's also the, I presume, a regulatory aspect to this. And has there been a loosening or was there even one required around what you guys are able to do? Because obviously this is you guys and Hims and Roman, and there's a whole kind of generation of companies that are growing up to basically do over the phone or over the internet what you might otherwise do in a doctor's office. And it feels like, you know, a lot of our behaviors in the pandemic have shifted, some of them permanently. And this feels like this could be potentially one of them, but it was just trying to figure out, you know, there's the consumer acceptance piece and also just the regulation and how the regulator feels about doing more and more stuff over the phone, not in person or over the internet rather. Yeah. So let me talk to a couple of things. So first I wanted to, maybe I should make clear for Nurex how it works. We're actually an asynchronous platform. So not only are we telehealth, but we're focused on an asynchronous modality, which means that, you know, you don't actually need to get on the phone or schedule a video. And what we have seen is that that dramatically reduces the friction even more than, you know, obviously going in person is one level of friction. Second level of friction is even having to schedule anything. And our vision around this is we want to put control in the patient's hands rather than in the system's hands. Because as you can imagine, in today's world, it's the system or, you know, doctor's offices, hospitals that are setting the appointments and patients have to just respond to that. In an asynchronous modality, patients can come onto the Nurex platform, they can input their information at their convenience, and then our providers actually react to them. And so that has dramatically also, I think, reduced the friction, and that's a key part of our vision around creating access. So just then to get to your some of your other questions, I would say that you know, telemedicine during the COVID period has gone from being a second or third option to a primary option. And I think that that has dramatically, just the sheer fact that millions of people have now had to use telemedicine has dramatically increased the trust in the format. And I think you see a lot of examples of mental health is probably the best example where patients who historically providers were not comfortable with the format the modality patients probably didn't know one way or another because of the covid environment where they've had to get therapy through this they're now actually asking their providers that they want to continue in this way and i'm not sure if you've seen that but there's a vast amount of data out there showing that patients actually are preferring this channel 
um, in certain areas. And what we've seen is in certain demographics in particular, there's almost a premium that patients are willing to pay in order to go online first. So the way we look at it is telehealth has gone from being a second or third option to kind of the primary way that people want to have a first conversation or a first experience. And I don't think that's going to change. I think it's... Um, you think that has kind of staying power? I think that it has staying powers, especially in certain areas where it's, you know, Look, if you've got a cancer diagnosis, if you've got, you know, a current urgent situation, you're probably going to go in. But for a lot of preventative health, we think in particular, that's where telehealth has a lot of ability to reduce the friction and the logistical challenges that are often in the way for why people don't get preventative health to begin with. And is there a regulatory piece here? Because obviously, you know, medicine, for very obvious reasons, is extremely highly regulated. And it does feel like you're kind of, your company and many, many others, and just the pandemic is kind of prying loose some of the control that has existed around a lot of what you can and can't do online, whether that's asynchronous or, you know, just via video conference or whatever. What is happening on that front, if anything? So... We have always been very regulatorily minded in the sense that telehealth has very strict regulation that we've had to follow, in particular because we do asynchronous store and forward telemedicine. There's only, you know, we are in about 30 states, and the reason we're not in 50 states is because about 20 states are still exploring whether to create that patient provider relationship. Does it actually need to be a live in person or live or video kind of communication? Mm. So we actually haven't seen a dramatic change in regulation. We're still working in the pre COVID environment. That's how we're working. My understanding is that in areas like COVID testing, that's an area where reimbursement rules and things like that have changed pretty dramatically during COVID. But really in the world that we sit in, it hasn't changed much. Right. Can we go backward? Because you've taken a circuitous route to this job. So it'd be good to just go back to kind of your background, like where are you from and how, you know, kind of how you ended up doing this job? Sure. Um, wow. There, I, <laughs> I, I could go back. There's a lot to go back. So I don't So where, where, well, where are you from? Where'd you grow up? Yeah, I grew up in Massachusetts in a suburb called Framingham, actually where the Framingham Heart Study has been done. I don't know what the Framingham Heart Study is. It's actually one of the most famous longitudinal heart studies that, it, that are out there. Oh. Uh, interestingly enough, I didn't, you know, I just happened to <laughs> be there, right. but um, grew up there, went to public school, and then went to undergrad at University of Pennsylvania, spent a couple of years in New York doing banking and just kind of building core skills, went to business school in Boston at Harvard, and then went back to New York and did consulting. Pretty much didn't really know what I wanted to do, but then got really inspired during the first dot-com boom to say I really wanted to try the entrepreneurial side of me, um, play it out. So I moved out to California and I started a company with a co-founder of my, a woman who had been my roommate back when we were living in New York. And we started a company called Eve.com, which was in the cosmetic space. I remember Eve.com. Do you? I mean, obviously I didn't use, I, I do. Uh, I didn't use it obviously, but I remember the name definitely. Yeah, it was, um, 
I don't know. It's it's ages ago now. It's like 20 years ago, yeah. so more. But it was an incredible journey. It was short. We started it in 98, and then we sold the company in early 2000. Before the proverbial hit the fan? Um, yes, I suppose. <laughs> I think, you know, we... Um, we really knew that we needed to raise more capital and we found a strategic partner and we sold the business. Ultimately, the company did get shut down at the end because of the whole dot-com crash, yeah. but it was a phenomenal experience. We met great people. I'm still in touch with a lot of those folks and just started me on my kind of entrepreneurial journey, I guess. And and did you get shares or did you get cash when you sold? <laughs> like from back then, that's always a big question. We did well. Maybe that's yeah, the best yeah. way to say it. We sold the company for about 110 million, and we had a nice exit. Right. And so, so that was right. Like that was core dot com craziness. Start a company and sell it. You know, 18 months later for 100 million dollars. Yeah, we weren't really looking to. Um, I mean, we started it. We would have been there for a lot longer. We were really um, looking to bring on a strategic partner yeah. that could help take us to the next place. And then things just kind of went the way they did. We were we were quite sad, truthfully. Like it's a baby that yeah. we build, and then when they shut it down, it was devastating, actually. So for a long time, we actually didn't really feel like it had been that successful, truthfully. Oh, really? Well, in the sense that, you know, it didn't live on. So did you sell it and then you were out and then they, once they had it, they shut it down? No, we were there till the end. So we ended up having to help shut it down too. So no, we weren't going anywhere. We were, we were there. We wanted to make it work. So, um, so we lived through the whole journey. We learned a lot mm. and in the hindsight or in with time, we've sort of learned to appreciate it for what it was. And um, is there a thing that sticks with you? Like a, a a lesson, good, bad, or indifferent from that roller coaster? I think um, a couple things. You know, we were the target demographic, you know, to begin with, busy working young women, and we were super passionate. And that really fueled us. Like we were working 18 hours a day. It didn't feel like work. It was it was incredible. And so I still think like that's the way to go. And that would is what I would um, encourage founders to really look for. Like make something that you, for yourself, basically. Make something you, that you really believe in, that you can relate to, that you can speak to passionately and authentically. Right. I think the other part, other lessons were build a great team, which I think we worked really hard to do. Those relationships have stayed with us. Be persistent. You know, it took us a long time to get some of these brands on board. We were like calling them a lot. But we finally persisted. Uh, we had o over 200 brands by the time we sold the company. And yeah, in terms of like how it ended, you know, we had a great board. And maybe that's the biggest lesson I would say is like we had a great board who was very helpful in helping us navigate some kind of tricky conversations. And so I would say choose your investors really wisely and make sure that they really they've got your back and they can think for the long term rather than just for the short term. How was it being a, a female founder? Was that something you felt back then in any way? Because 20 years, uh, whatever, yeah, 20 years ago, the world was a different place, but also in some ways not very different. <laughs> yeah, I mean, absolutely. Like there were a lot of VCs we spoke to who just could not imagine how anybody could buy makeup online. Really? They were putting everything online then, but that's crazy, it seems to me. 
So one of the main investors we brought on was Sonia Perkins, who was at Menlo Ventures, and she got it immediately. And it was just such a different response we got when there was a woman in the room. Because all the VCs that were men, they were like, oh, I'll have to ask my wife. And they just couldn't (laughs) see it. It was really interesting. That's weird. Yeah, but I guess not surprising. So you did that and then you shut down and then what did you go do? So then I did a bunch of different um, executive roles. So I led OldNavy.com. So I went to work at The Gap for a number of years. I led OldNavy.com. That was just really fun and it's a much bigger scaling experience. And I worked for this great entrepreneur named Toby Lank, who had been the founder of eToys. And so I felt like we were both entrepreneurs in this corporate setting and he's awesome. And then we moved to Asia for my husband's job. And so I took on a role there and I worked for... um, Where were you? We were in Singapore. How was living in Singapore? It was great. We had just such a wonderful experience. Our kids were really young and we traveled a lot. We met some great people who are just like our lifelong friends. So it was a wonderful experience. And I'd never lived outside the U.S., And so I just kind of also wanted that experience. Our kids are now fluent in Mandarin because we were able to like help them get that exposure. That's cool. So that was great. So I I ran a living socials international business Mm. from there. And so that was a really fun journey. Ended up, you know, not being like the big success, but I learned a ton. It was my first real job, like scaling a large organization. I started off as the first employee in Asia, but then like in about seven months, we had like 1,400 people in Asia because we had acquired a couple businesses. And ultimately, I kind of had about 2,000 people across 14 countries. Um, And then we moved back to the U.S. And in 2013, and I've had this like amazing international experience. And that's when I took on the role of heading up global operations for Airbnb. 2013 Airbnb, what was that at the time? In terms of its size and scope, because obviously it's it is it's worth $120 billion right now, which is insane. I know. It's, it's incredible. We were about 700 people, and my team was about 60% of that at the time. You know, Airbnb was already very global. So in the sense that, you know, almost from day one, Airbnb has been a global concept. So we had team, I had teams across the world as part of my role. We weren't very big in Asia at all. And so that was also part of the kind of, I think, the reason why I was a good fit. I was on the executive team reporting into Brian and my scope. And I was also the executive sponsor for Asia to help build that out, having lived there. And then there were other areas. It was still very urban. Um, The whole concept of vacation markets and all of that was not really part of the ethos yet for Airbnb. So that was a great journey. I was there for almost four years and traveled a ton, insane amount of travel, but just had a wonderful experience. And then after that, I took a break. And that's when I transitioned to healthcare. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wegovy and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com/weightloss. That's plushcare.com/weightloss. plushcare.com/weightloss. Just briefly on Airbnb because I think it's such a fascinating. We I just was doing something on the, the kind of the sharing economy and how they've kind of navigated this fall off a cliff with. The, pandemic and then they've come roaring back in a way that say hotel companies haven't and the way they've kind of chosen to deal with you know refunds and everything to kind of you know people making customers whole and all this stuff but is there something about airbnb or the way brian chesky leads that that really kind of just works or is that that is different from other places you have been and seen i would say there's two things that are incredibly special about airbnb having um, spent time there. One, it is the it is a very mission-driven company. And it was unlike any company I'd been a part of before, truthfully. Like I'd been a part of lots of really interesting companies, but the way the founders have put mission and culture mm. ahead of other things really is infused. Well, what do you what do you mean by that? Because I feel like every if you <laughs> if you read the press releases and the new and the websites out here Every company is mission driven, every single one. And I never know what to make of that because I feel like most of it is bollocks, as the Brits say. Yeah, I think, look, it's just different. You know, <laughs> I mean, the founders, the first, you know, before they had a single employee, they talked about the culture and the core values that they wanted in the company. That's not typical. Yeah. You know, they have made decisions along the way that are probably not the best for the business, but to preserve the culture and the mission. But ultimately, that element of like, I, I wouldn't say aren't the best for the business. I, I shouldn't say that they were probably not the best for like revenue or growth, but they were ultimately exactly the right thing for the business because the community aspect is such an important part of why people want to be part of Airbnb, whether you're a host, whether you're a guest, whether you're an employee. And it's incredibly difficult to replicate that. Yeah. So I think there's that aspect that's really unique. And then I think the other piece is this global network business, uh, network effect business that Airbnb is, that is really like unlike any business model out there. Even, you know, ride share and, you know, um, food delivery, they're kind of marketplace businesses, but they're much more localized. But the global network effect that Airbnb has is truly unique. That global network effect, what, what do you mean? Like, how does that manifest itself? It means that the value of having a global brand is incredibly powerful because hosts and guests are not in the right same place. And so if you're a guest, one year you're going to go to London, maybe. Next year you might go to... Paris, or next year you might go to Thailand. You don't want to be learning about a new brand in all these different places. And then if you're a host, you want to welcome guests from around the world, not just from your 
locality. And that's very unusual for marketplace businesses. Yeah. So you were there for four years. You left in 2017? Right at the end of 2016. Then you went to healthcare, I think. Was that Clover? Is that right? So I took about seven months off and I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And I met the CEO of Clover Health and just introduced to me. And I'd never thought about going into healthcare. I was an early investor in Nurex. Oh, so you already knew about this company? Yeah. So I knew the founders of Nurex from, I invested in March of 2016. Oh, okay. Still when I was at Airbnb. And I was always really moved by the mission around reimagining access to healthcare. But I didn't really think of myself as going into healthcare, truthfully. But when I started to hear, after I left Airbnb, I was kind of like, well, what could I do that kind of would be comparable? You know, I don't want to just do anything. And I thought after talking and learning more about what some of the challenges of healthcare and what Clover was doing, I thought, wow, that could be really uh, meaningful. And what was Clover doing? Clover is doing Medicare Advantage and trying to use data and technology to improve outcomes. And what does that mean? It means that like there are a lot of people who don't actually do a lot of preventative tests, a lot of preventative care for themselves, or even not even preventative, but like manage their chronic conditions because of logistics, because of inability to get your prescription, inability to get to the doctor, a lot of different steps. And so how can we use data and technology at minimum to do those things and then long-term to be able to help improve outcomes? Right. And so I took on the COO role there. I was there for a little over a year. And I what I realized was healthcare is super meaningful. It's also really big. Yeah. And I realized that maybe Medicare Advantage was not the right fit for me, having spent my whole career in kind of a consumer, very fast-paced consumer business. And so... I left, and then a couple months later, I joined Nurex as the CEO. Hans and Eddie, who are the founders, they actually asked me to come on board to consult for a couple of months, and I thought, oh, I'd love to do that, and I got to know the company more and just really fell in love with the mission even more than what I knew as, as an investor, and I thought, oh, well, this could be really, really meaningful, and it's been amazing. So it's been almost two years now since I joined. And because I know that Nurex had a bit of a... A rough patch. There's. I, I was before we got on the phone. I read this New York Times article about the the closet full of birth control and some kind of <laughs> issues it had. And it sounds like, in a lot of ways, it's it's a journey that a lot of startups have, where you know, grow as fast as you can, grow as fast as you can, and then at some point, you have to kind of take stock or and people leave and new people come in. So I joined really, they, they asked me to take on the leadership role because they were ready to scale. And I'd had that experience in some of the other roles that I'd had. I did not know about the New York times article, but it was like my first week or two of work. That's what I ended up dealing with. It was um, not exactly what I expected <laughs> at all. Um, but I think, you know, it was a good wake-up call. You know, the great thing is, is there was never any patient safety issues ever in that situation. Everything that had happened had happened in the past and had been sort of changed already. But it was a good wake-up call for me coming in to say, look, you know, the company has grown a lot. Let's make sure we focus on investing in compliance and regulatory and all of those things that are really important for healthcare. And we did. And so that was one of the first things I was able to just give our legal and compliance team the resources they need, the prioritization, 
we invested in all of that. And we've really, I think, and we have an amazing general counsel. She spent almost a decade at McKesson. She knows this stuff inside and out. We work with like all the, you know, appropriate outside counsel, pharmacy counsel, telemedicine counsel, like everything. And I'm really happy to say that, like, I think we've put all of that stuff like well behind us. And so now we can really focus on, you know, we're building incredible amount of trust with our patients and we now serve over 300,000 patients on a monthly basis. So we've had tremendous growth over the last couple of years. And then most recently we launched, you know, over 2020, even with all the COVID challenges, we launched herpes in the beginning of the year, but then later in the year, we've expanded into migraines, which is a area that is a really debilitating for a lot of, uh, a lot of people in general. There's about 39 million people who suffer from migraines, but a huge proportion of them are women. So 85% of them, and there's a high overlap with our patient population. And so that made a lot of sense. And that's kind of the existing, like the mentality that we have is we really want to listen to our patients in terms of what their challenges are so we can address more and more of those issues. And so we are actually very close to launching a next service line in dermatology. It's again, an area that you know, you can imagine our patients 18 to 50, a huge percentage of them do experience uh, lots of different challenges with acne, rosacea, things like that. And just like migraines and even herpes and some of these areas where a lot of these issues are sensitive and they can really detract from confidence and like being able to put your best foot forward. And we, our view is we, we take a very medical and clinical approach to these areas unlike, look, I, I had an experience and I, a wonderful experience with Eve and the beauty industry. And there's definitely a whole place for that uh, with cosmetics. But we also at Nurex, we're very much clinically oriented and taking a healthcare approach to dermatology. So really excited to get that launch very soon. And so things like when you say you launch migraines and you're about to do the same with dermatology, Will that also be asynchronous? Like I log in and say, I have migraines or I'm worried about this skin condition. And then it's kind of a back and forth over email. Or do you are you going to have to start doing the kind of teleconference with a doctor? Yeah. So for migraines, we've innovated on and created what we call a virtual neurological exam. So we ask patients to take, you know, about four short videos of themselves doing various like tests. Oh, really? Yeah, and we developed it with a Yale-trained neurologist. And her view is it's potentially even better than an actual in-person exam because you can actually go back and look at the data in the videos if you want to. And so, yeah, you take these short videos and you record yourself. And then if our providers ever have any questions, they can go back and ask the patient to, you know, re-record or things like that. And then so it is all asynchronous as well. And those are assessed always by a human on the other end. It's not like you haven't built an algorithm that's been like, oh, your jaw's doing, you must have migraine, therefore we'll send you some pills. Always, always um, reviewed by trained and licensed providers, always, yeah. And then for acne, we will launch with photos, not video. And so you'll have to take a couple of photos of where you're experiencing acne, and we'll use those photos to do a diagnosis. And our providers always have the ability, as I said, to message back and forth. But this actually just, again, reduces the friction because there's a lot of situations that are pretty straightforward. Yeah. And I guess the other thing is, do insurance companies, have they 
because obviously, I mean, we have a lot of listeners overseas where there's, you know, especially in the UK, there's the NHS where it's just, it's the NHS. But here, obviously, insurance is a massive issue. And how do the insurance companies approach this? Because also, again, just stepping back, it feels like this is kind of the beginning of a lot more of this stuff going online. How does the industry look at this stuff? Is it hard to get them to pay for things? So we accept insurance for the medications that we offer. And so if you have insurance through your employer or through a marketplace or something, you can use that insurance for the, any medication that a provider might prescribe for you. And then we can actually also you know, ship that out for you if you like, or we can send the prescription to a local pharmacy. On the consultation side, patients pay for that out of pocket or with cash. And so for birth control, the consultation is $15. It's pretty reasonable. It's pretty yeah. similar to what you'd pay as a copay. For migraines, it's more expensive. It's $60. But what we have found is that you know patients are very willing to pay that because it can take, you know, there's only about 500 headache specialists in the whole country. It can take you months to get in to see a neurologist. So with Nurex, you could see somebody in like 24 hours. And so I guess that was the other question is, you know, if I'm suffering a migraine and I go online and I make my videos, how long before I can actually get relief? Like how long before I can actually take a pill? So it could be anywhere from, you know, 24 to 48 hours if you have the prescription sent to your local pharmacy, or it could be five days if it being mailed to you. So I think it depends. And sometimes what we do for patients, certainly if they're in a lot of pain, we'll do the first fill to your local pharmacy. And then after that, we can ship it to you so you can receive it. It's more convenient so that you can receive it at home. And it also depends, right? So some migraines, we're going to prescribe preventative medications if you get a lot of them, meaning that you might be on medication daily to prevent. You know, there's some patients who get as many as like eight to 10 migraines a month. So for people like that, there's a different protocol versus something that's more episodic where you might want to have it on hand and, you know, start to take the medication a couple of days before. And those consultation fees, the one that you pay out of pocket, is that because insurance companies won't pay for that yet? So first of all, for that consultation, you get a year's worth of care with our providers. So you can message us anytime you want over the course of the year. And we do get a lot of patients who do message us on a frequent basis because there are questions that people have. So it's it's a little bit like a membership. To date, insurance companies have, um, they don't necessarily have a model for reimbursing for asynchronous care. And so that has been sort of the reason why we haven't gone down that route yet. We think it'll be, it'll happen, but you know, we still believe so much in this model that we've sort of leaned forward in this because of just the real reduction in friction that it offers patients. So, yeah, but we think that that would be a place where there could be innovation on the regulatory side. And then stepping back and going back all the way to the Eve days up to what you're doing now, do you ever have a kind of a moment of like realization of like kind of what you are doing now relative to, I imagine, what was some fairly kind of basic things that you could do at Eve.com, just the evolution of the kind of the internet and all the, the business that is around that? You've been on the kind of the coal face of it. You must have seen just massive change. Could you have seen this coming, what you're doing now? 
I would say back then the simplest things were incredibly hard <laughs> and ex- incredibly expensive. For you know? example, um, I, I don't even know if I can remember all the numbers. It was so long ago, but it, it was probably like a million dollars just to like launch our website. What? Yeah, like just everything that we needed to like pay for and buy and people, like the whole thing. It just took so much time, money, server, everything. It was just so expensive. There wasn't any like um, WordPress and AWS that you can kind of put together a website for 50 bucks in an hour or whatever. Exactly. It was incredibly capital intensive. And so I'm just amazed by how I think it's phenomenal that you can just test ideas and go live quickly on things and see if it works or not. It's just it allows for so much more innovation. Yeah. Last question. Your best day of work and your worst day of work. In my life or at Nurex? In your life. Oh, gosh. (laughs) I would say my best day of life at work has always been, this is a little bit of a broader answer, is when we launch things. Because it is just so fun to see people and whether they're customers or patients, wherever I've been, just react and start to use something that, you know, that we've created. I just think whether it was like, we just launched herpes, we just launched migraines, whether it was like, you know, launching in Cuba when I was at Airbnb, or like opening up in China, or Eve, like when we turned on the lights, like, those were just amazing moments to see like what you could build with technology. Right. And your worst day? I'd say the worst day have been when you're working with people, whether they're, I guess, potentially on your team, or around you at work, or venture capitalists, or in the ecosystem, Mm. who, not that they didn't believe in your idea, but they made you feel like you weren't appropriate Mm. to be the one doing the idea, or that you couldn't do it, that they just didn't believe in you as the individual. And that's happened. Like, I've been underestimated a couple times, and it's really painful. But when you actually deliver, that must be extra satisfying then. I used to think that way. But now when I look at the damage it does, Mm. I don't feel the same way. How much of that has to do, do you think, with just being a woman in this industry? I think it has to do with that. But I don't think that's appropriate anymore. No. And I think I'm more willing to say that. And I didn't have probably the confidence or even the like, like the wherewithal yeah. to like even expect anything more than that before. Yeah. Well, it's 2021. So. Exactly. And I've got a daughter who's 15 and a son who's 17. And I think we're trying to make sure that they are entering a new world where it's really different. And I'm, I'm really proud of some of the things that we've done this year. There's still a lot of work to do. But at Nurex, we're really focused on inclusion and belonging and creating an environment where everybody feels like they can be their best self. And I will have to say, I have never felt more able to be my authentic self than here at Nurex. And I think it's part of doing what we do. Like, you know, when you're working around contraception and HIV prevention through PrEP, these are all areas that are like, completely sensitive, if not taboo. 
And so we've been in these areas that maybe other people have shied away for, for a while. And so like our mission at Nurex is really powerful. And I think um, it's something that I think we're really proud of. And that goes broader into like this whole inclusion and belonging um, space as well. And so five years from now, what is Nurex? What is the vision? Yeah, I mean, our vision is really honestly to reimagine access to healthcare and access being the operative word. We want everybody across conditions, ages, and ultimately sexes to really be able to have care that is high quality, deeply specialized, Mm. and available cost-effectively as well as logistically. And right now, there are way too many hurdles. And so we don't see ourselves as primary care. We see ourselves as going really deep into these specializations, but across all of the various specializations that basically people will need over the course of their lives. And, you know, ultimately probably being global, but we haven't gotten that far yet. So really focused on the U.S. for a long time. And that is all the time we have. Uh, I want to thank Varsha for taking the time and being so generous and sharing some of those stories and some of the kind of, as well as the more, you know, difficult moments as well. Um, I want to thank you guys for listening, as ever, as well as for your ratings and reviews and your support and just listening and telling friends. And that is it for me. You can find me in thetimes.co.uk. You can find me on the Twitters, at Danny Fortson. I'm on Clubhouse these days, you know. I, I just kind of show up and lurk around. Uh, I have talked in a couple rooms here and there, but usually I'm just kind of moseying around because that's what people are doing these days. So you can find me there too. But anyhow, I will leave you for now. Have a great weekend. Stay safe. Stay sane. The end of this weird, terrible year, I feel like, is upon us. So stay strong. And talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Past Imperfect with Rachel Sylvester and Alice Thompson. A weekly series of in-depth interviews with high-profile figures examining how overcoming the challenges of their early lives shaped the people they've become. This week, Booker Prize-winning author Douglas Stewart talks candidly about coping with his mother's alcoholism and being gay in 80s working-class Glasgow. I was attacked very violently when I was, I think I was 15. And actually, it was an old Glaswegian housewife who was driving by. She thought they were stamping on a dog and so stopped her car and got out and chase these boys away and and at the center of it was me past imperfect with rachel sylvester and alice thompson douglas stewart in his own words now available as a podcast listen on the times radio app or wherever you get your podcasts iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone.